We're in Romans chapter 2 this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to page 1113, and uh, follow along with us. But you might remember, at the very beginning of uh, our study in Romans, I tried to draw a very hard line between religion and Christianity. And uh, I tried to make the point uh, that religion is always about good advice, and Christianity is about good news. And there's a world of difference between good advice and good news. Religion is always about people and what people do, but Christianity is about God and what God has done in Christ. There's a world of difference between religion and Christianity, which is a relationship with God. And so this morning, I want to suggest to you that in order to get from religion to actually being a Christian takes a complete change of heart takes a total reorientation to life, takes a whole, if you you will, repentance, a change of heart. To get from religion to Christianity takes repentance. Uh, So many people's faith is in religion. So many people's faith is in a program of religion instead of the person of God in Jesus Christ. Faith in a program and faith in a person are worlds apart. And uh, I think if you've been tracing with us in the book of Romans, you realize that at the very beginning here in the first couple of chapters, uh, Paul is talking about God's anger, God's wrath, what it is that God's really ticked about. And uh, obviously we started out that God's wrath is being stored up against wickedness and against evil, like everybody would agree with this, against that which is blatantly sinful and rebellious and and so forth. But then we saw that God's wrath is also against moralistic people who point the finger at others in judgment and think that by their own good efforts, they'll be able by their own standards to stand before God themselves. But this morning, I want to suggest to you that the Apostle Paul goes even further and describes just how much God hates religion. And uh, for our purposes this morning in Romans chapter 2, especially uh, what Judaism had become as a religion in Jesus' day. So bad that these people who had God's revelation totally missed what God had been saying, what God was saying, and what God revealed about their future. And so Paul talks about the wrath of God being against religion. God's judgment, we've seen now uh, in several places here in the first couple chapters of Romans, God's judgment, which is perfect, okay, is being reserved for a day that's yet in the future. It's talked about all through the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, and um, it's called the Day of the Lord. And it's a specific period of time that the Bible says is coming that's going to be filled with unprecedented judgment, something like the days of Noah, but far worse. And uh, it's called the Day of the Lord. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when you're talking to people, uh, even today, people will ask the question, you know, why doesn't God do something? The world is getting to be a terrible place. And this and that, people just sense that God must be, you know, really frustrated with some of the things that are going on in our world. And and people ask this question, they're like, well, well, why doesn't God do something? Uh, What's God waiting for? And in uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, we saw... This is the answer to that question. Why doesn't God do something? He's gonna, but he's waiting. Why? Verse 4 says, 
do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his tolerance, and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness today leads you towards repentance? Why is God not unloading his judgment on the world today? Well, because God is patient, because God is slow to anger, because God is giving people a chance to repent, to change, and to come and to find him. I mean, that's the answer as to why is it that God is so patient with his judgment? And if we don't repent, verse 5 says, well, if you refuse to repent, then because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are simply storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when the righteous judgment will be revealed. If we refuse to repent, if we refuse to take advantage of this window of time between now and when this wrath of God will actually be unleashed on the world, which is described in detail in the book of Revelation, uh, if we miss that, then we're simply storing up God's wrath. I want to suggest to you that this subject of repentance uh, is that just that God is waiting, giving us an opportunity to change, to repent, to turn around. Uh, I would suggest to you that repentance is a radical change of heart. It's not something that's on the surface of our life. It's not about doing something. It's about a heartfelt transition, transformation. It's about a whole reorientation from the inside all the way through all the different factors of our life. Uh, when we realize that uh, repentance changes our thinking, changes our attitudes, changes our worldview, changes our direction, changes our actions, uh, repentance is like a revolution in a person's heart, in a person's spirit, at the core of their being. And uh, we realize uh, from the scriptures, and what Paul is trying to do here, is there's, there's absolutely no way out of a sinful life. There's no way out of being a judgmental, self-righteous person. There's no way out of being a religious person and into a vibrant relationship with God except through repentance. Except through this change of heart at the core of our being. And everywhere in the Bible, faith and repentance are talked about together. Turning to put your faith in Christ is a synonym virtually for repentance. Uh, Mark's gospel, there's four gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Mark's gospel, obviously, is the oldest one. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark is this. Uh, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance are almost always presented together. And this transformation, this repentance that uh, the Bible is talking about here in Romans chapter 2 is determinative of our whole personality. When your core changes, it works its way out into everything we are, uh, even as we sang about this morning. And it's always the outworking of the very Spirit of God giving us new life. And so the Apostle Paul, who was like on track to become like the most religious Jew possible, the Bible calls him a Pharisee of Pharisees, and so Paul's out to, you know, become like the leading religious person of his time until he meets Christ. And he realized that that's a track to no place. And so in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul is trying to move his fellow religious Jewish people to a gospel-centric 
life. Again, religion is always focused on externals, while God is always after people's hearts. Uh, religion gives people a, a deceptive kind of false confidence. You might remember in Matthew chapter 7 that uh, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking and he said, you know, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on, he says, many people are going to say to me on that day, when we stand before the Lord, 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 didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? In other words, weren't we very religious doing all the stuff that you wanted us to do? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I, I never knew you. I never knew you. You can't substitute religion for a relationship with the living God who made you to be one of his children. And repentance, that change at the core of our being, is the way in which we enter into that relationship. And so I just think that, you know, religious loyalty keeps people from the heart of the issue, from uh, getting to know God on a personal level. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Tradition, culture, religion uh, becomes the, where we put our faith, where we camp out. And so this passage, it seems to me, is, is highly significant uh, for us to understand, like a wake-up call for us. So in um, Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, uh, Paul gets going here on this whole subject of religion. And here's what he says. He's talking about the Jewish people, obviously. Verse 17, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God. So Paul's like, this is where we're going to start with where you are. The name Jew is uh, from the tribe of Judah. It was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it came from that name, one of the tribes, the southern tribe. And um, it, it simply means praise to Jehovah. You call yourself a Jew, you're like, I'm one of the people who knows and praises God, who understands God. And I just think, you know, uh, how many of us call ourselves Christians, but the name is like the extent of our connection? And how easy it is to just say, well, you know, I'm not Jewish, so therefore I'm a Christian. Or I'm not Muslim, therefore I'm a Christian. And uh, just, you know, claiming the name is not really claiming the essence or experiencing the essence. And then, of course, the second thing Paul says, you, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law. You rely on the fact that you possess the law. Uh, religious people often think that they're secure uh, because they have an inside track on the truth. Right? And, um, of course, the Jews have the laws of God. They were given the Ten Commandments. They were given the first five books of the Old Testament. And they bragged about it. We have a word from God. Uh, and, you know, um, just because we have a Bible... Just because we hold in our hands the very revelation of God that God oversaw so that we could have a direct word from him, just because we possess the truth doesn't necessarily mean that we're special. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're anything. I mean, many people have Bibles and never read them. Or people read them and never obey them. Or people read it and don't believe it. So the possession of this uh, word from God is not what gives us that relationship with God. I have a stethoscope, but I'm not a doctor. I use it to work on cars. I listen to noises inside engines. 
having a stethoscope doesn't make me a doctor. I also have a piano. I'm not a musician. Having a piano does not make you a musician. Some people have a gun, but the gun doesn't make them a cop, right? So to possess the Word of God and to have a copy of the Word of God and even know the Word of God. And we, I think, are such privileged people because many of us have you know, a number of different translations uh, about it, and uh, we can read it in the Greek and the Hebrew, and we can quote places from it and so forth, but um, we can still have a cold heart, a hard heart, a heart that says, I'm not going to surrender to what God is saying here. I'm not going to submit myself to what God says he made me for, and so forth. And so um, it doesn't make you a believer. In fact, when you start to brag about your religion, you reveal the problem. Religion is always egocentric, whereas Christianity is gospel-centric. Wayne Porter gave me the best definition of ego that I've ever heard. He said, ego stands for edging God out, E-G-O. I thought, wow, that's exactly right, edging God out. The Apostle Paul gives us the best definition of a gospel-centric life. He says, uh, you know, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. This great Apostle Paul, on track to be this very religious person, met Christ and said from that point on, God forbid that I should glory in anything or boast about anything except the cross where Jesus died in my place. And so then Paul goes on here in verse 18, and he says, you know, if you know God's will, and if you approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law, in other words, if you have God's word and you possess this special knowledge from God and you realize that you're in this superior position, but you think you're better than the Gentiles who don't have this privilege, you don't understand that the possession of the truth makes you double responsible. God gave you that truth to live by. Uh, I can show you in the Old Testament where God said, I'm giving you this truth so that you can share it with the nations. I'm giving it so that you can be a light to the world. And to possess that reality and not use it makes us double responsible. And again, I think about those of us who are Christians in the same uh, kind of vein. We probably know more about the Bible than any guy on the street. We can quote it again. You know, we have different versions and so forth. But we can be unchanged in our hearts. And refuse to submit to it. It's a delusion to think that because we're privileged to be entrusted with the truth, that we're special to God. We become arrogant and filled with a kind of a presumption, you know, and, and we end up with this kind of superiority complex instead of realizing that such privilege comes with twice as much responsibility. The great body and truth of truth that was entrusted to us is for us to live by and to share with people around us. And so in verses 19, as Paul goes on here in Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul becomes like a prosecuting attorney. It's kind of like the whole religion of Judaism is on trial here in this passage. And, and here's what he says. He says, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, if you think you have the truth, if you think that uh, you're a light for those who are in the dark, or you're an instructor of the foolish, a, a teacher of infants and children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? 
As it is written, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul's like a prosecuting attorney going after religious people. And the essence of what Paul is saying there is that religious people don't live up to their own standards. No religious person is able to live up to what they know to be the right thing to do. They were guilty. They had kind of a double standard. The, the Talmud, which was a, a Jewish a group of Jewish writings that was sort of the, the tradition and the teaching of the Jewish people in Jesus' day, it was called the Talmud. Even in the Talmud, three rabbis are accused of adultery. And, of course, the world around them becomes aware of this. And so the minute that people think that they're in some kind of superior you know, position simply because they possess the truth of God and don't live by it, the world then begins to laugh and mock the God who gave it so that he could be glorified. And that's Paul's argument. Religion doesn't work. Religion will never... In fact, in verse 24, he says, look at the result. When you violate your religion, uh, God's name is blasphemed among the non-religious people because they look at you and they say, you're no better than us, you're worse than us. And you think you know God and you think you have this relation, you think you're going to heaven and I'm not and all of this. How many surveys have been around lately on Christianity to show that uh, different statistical levels of different kinds of behavior are not that different in the church than outside the church? And how many people use that against us to say, you know, every time we have a political campaign like this year where the evangelical uh, block is sought or disdained, you know, all these kinds of issues begin to come to the surface. And um, here, Paul is saying, look, you know, this is something more than religion. Religion will never be able to, uh, religious people never be able to live up to their own religious ideas. God entrusted the truth to the Jewish people so that they could represent him. But they used it as a badge instead of a mission, instead of understanding it that it was their mission in life. And again, how many people have you met, you know, who uh, dismiss the claims of God against their life because they tell a story of some hypocritical Christian that they know who claimed to know God and, uh, you know, somehow did them wrong and so forth, and so they just totally dismiss the whole thing. Possession of God's word is a privilege, but it doesn't make us believers. It ups our responsibility, and it also exposes us that we are no better than anybody else apart from the cross and apart from Christ. Another issue about religious people that Paul then goes into uh, is the whole idea of thinking that you and I can somehow be right with God by association. By association. Um, the Jewish people, of course, thought that circumcision was kind of like a badge, kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, that I'm one of the chosen people because I'm circumcised. And that was a sign, you know, of God's uh, blessing on me. Uh, they, were, uh, they were secure in a relationship with God based on circumcision, and Gentiles, of course, weren't. Uh, circumcision originally uh, was a sign of Abraham's faith. If you just turn the page to uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, uh, we read that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision didn't change his heart. Circumcision was a sign that his heart had changed, that he had put his faith in God. And so it was just a symbol. And uh, yet in Judaism, in religion, oftentimes the symbols become the substitute for the reality. 
You know, I have a wedding ring on that indicates that I belong to my wife, Barb. Right? It doesn't mean a thing if I don't honor it. It's a symbol of commitment. But it's just a symbol. It doesn't make the commitment. The commitment has to come from the heart. And, and the same thing is true for circumcision. same thing is true for baptism. Hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I was baptized when I was a baby. You know, the same thing is true for uh, belonging to a church. You a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. You know, somehow we think that by association, by being circumcised, religion, people that were in that religion thought, you know, I'm, I'm cool with God. And God is pleased with me by that association. And uh, it's just not true. Affiliations and associations and rituals do not make you a believer, and God is not impressed. Look at how Paul goes on here in verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. It's like a wedding ring has value if you honor it. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law, keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. Religion never works. Religion can't do for you what only Jesus can do. What does impress God? Repentance. Look at the next two verses. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. It's a cutting away of sin and worldliness in the heart to make room for God to take up residence in our being. And it's by the Spirit, by God's Spirit, not by the written code. It's by an internal move, not an external move. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And I want to suggest to you, that, you know, that this has always been the way it is. God has always been after the heart. Went all the way back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, way back in the very uh, first five books of the Bible. And uh, again, God is talking about gathering the Jewish people from scattering them all over the place. He says, even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back and he will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you'll take possession of it, and he'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And listen, here's the verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. There's coming a day when the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Circumcision is an issue of the heart, and it's always been. Uh, another uh, passage of Scripture uh, in Ezekiel, I think, is kind of telling. In Ezekiel chapter 33, it's very humbling if you're a preacher, but in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30, uh, God is talking to Ezekiel the prophet, and here's what he says. He says, As for you, son of man, uh, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, and they're saying to each other, Come and hear the message that God has from the Lord. My people come to you, as they usually do, and they sit before you to listen to your words, but they don't put them into practice. With their mouths, they express devotion, 
but their hearts are full of greed for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you're nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, he's talking about this judgment that's coming in the future. When all this finally comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet had been among them. That's a, you know, powerful passage of Scripture. Again, I just, I'm trying to make the point that this is about your heart. Uh, you might remember in um, Hebrews chapter 4, the, the Bible says of itself that it's aimed at your heart, right? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating, even dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You can always tell if you're really connecting with God through his word, which is why he gives his word, why we all speak, is so that we can connect if your heart is moved. It's beyond our heads and down into our hearts. When the Bible has its way, it speaks to your heart. It goes past our minds and down into our hearts. Another uh, Old Testament passage of scripture that I think is uh, along the same lines here, religion versus this relationship with God, is in the book of the Old Testament prophet Micah, which is, again, about, you know, this coming judgment, pretty much. And um, he asks that question and, and, and says, you know, with, with what shall I come before the Lord? How am I going to stand before God? And, uh, and here's what he says. He says, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams when 10,000 rivers of oil... Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see what he's saying? When people say, well, well how am I going to come before God? And the religious people say, well, it's about what we do and the sacrifices we make and the offerings and this and that and the other thing. And the prophet is saying, no, it's about your heart. Do you love mercy? Do you stand up for justice? And do you walk humbly with your God? Because those are the things, the issues of the heart that matter to God. Uh, Romans 10, again, is another a passage of scripture that focuses on the heart. How is it that you can repent? How is it that you can change? Well, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved from the wrath of God. Right? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The issue is our heart. What God is interested in is our heart. And nothing short of repentance, this radical transformation in our whole worldview, our whole outlook, our whole understanding of life, will suffice in order to bring us into a relationship with God. And as Paul says here in Romans chapter 2, you know, there's an outer you and there's an inner you. There's an outer you and there's an inner you. Religion is always focused on the outer you. Christianity is focused on the inner you. Repentance, this change that God is after, is a repentance that takes place in people's hearts and then works its way out 
uh, through all of our lives. And that's why, uh, you know, legalistic type religion, moralistic type religion can never satisfy. Religion bypasses the heart. Well, the gospel goes right to the heart. You were created by a father who really loves you. You were in the mind and heart of God way before you were ever born. You were created by a father who loves you, and he made you to be like himself. He originally intended to fill the earth with his glory through his creation, and he will do it. He's still on game to make that happen. But our original ancestors, as you know, Adam and Eve, rebelled. They wanted to be their own gods. So we don't want to, you know, submit to the God who made us, our creator. We want to be our own gods. And you and I were born in their likeness. Everybody since Adam and Eve is born with that disease. We're born with that bent. And it's still the problem today. We've lost our way. In fact, we've created religion to try to get back in touch with God. But religion never works, which is simply why I think there's so many religions. Because they just don't work. God instead comes to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't come to bring justice, which we deserve. He came to bring grace, undeserved favor. We rebel against him. His love overcomes that rebellion. And while we're still in our sin, Christ comes and dies on a cross. And God takes everything that's wrong with you and me, puts it on Christ, and judges him in our place lets his judgment come out onto Christ that we deserve. And then God turns to us and says, listen, if you'll repent, if you'll see things my way, if you'll embrace what I'm telling you, if you'll believe in my son, you and I will have a relationship that will last for all of eternity. I will give you eternal life. I will put my spirit in your spirit, and you will have a whole new life. It'll start now, and it'll go on for all of eternity. Death will be just a transition for you. And as soon as you realize that this grace that's afforded to us by the work of the person of Jesus, that his death was in our place, and that the only way out of being addicted to ourselves, whether it's through sinning or through religious, moralistic understanding of life that you know you don't live up to, as soon as you realize that this grace is available, you repent, you change. You say, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to embrace this truth. And you become a gospel-centric person. Uh, your whole understanding of life, uh, the acceptance of God's grace at a heart level releases us into a life of freedom and uh, a life of joy. In uh, Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Galatia and it had a lot of Jewish people in it. And what happened is they embraced the gospel and they were so excited about God's grace, but then as a little bit of time went along, they slipped back into religion. And the whole book of Galatians is written to address that problem. And uh, Paul reminds these people in, like, this is Paul's most adamant letter. He's just like ballistic in this letter. But in chapter 5, he says, listen, chapter 5, verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. It's for freedom that Christ, it's for joy and love and peace and freedom that God put his son on the cross so that we could be free. So we don't have to worry about the wrath of God that we deserve. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourself be burdened again by some yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. 
That was the, that was the issue to the Jewish people, you know. Christ will be of no value. To, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated then to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified before God by law. You've been alienated from Christ, and here's the phrase, you have fallen away from grace. Grace is such a radical concept. It's so counterintuitive. It's so different than the way we were raised. It's so different than the way we relate to one another that when God relates to us by grace, you know, we understand it and we grab it and it's great, but then there's a tendency to slip back into living by religion again, by rules and laws and by the outside instead of the inside. And instead of cultivating that heart relationship with God, we fall into this performance kind of mode. And Paul says, look, by faith we eagerly wait through the Spirit the righteousness in which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And then he says this statement. The only thing that really counts, okay, is faith that expresses itself through love. The only thing that really matters is faith. What you believe that expresses itself through our lives in love. And it's such a great corrective. Uh, faith and repentance is the lifestyle of gospel-centric living. What happens is we, be, we continually become aware of the holiness of God. The more you study his word, the more you meet other Christians, the more you allow the spirit to direct you, the more you realize God is very different than we are. He's much higher than we are. And of course, the more you realize that, the more you realize how sinful you are. And so this process of repentance becomes a lifestyle. It's not just a one-time kind of thing. It's this change of heart in response to God continually throughout our whole lives, revealing more of himself to us and exposing more of ourselves to ourselves. And that what happens is that the cross gets magnified. We become so thankful for the life of Christ that our, we begin to develop this love relationship that grows. We're so, but we know we're totally lost without Christ. No religion could ever make us right with God. That's the burden of what Paul says here and elsewhere and all through the book of Galatians. And so repentance is not just being sorry. Repentance is not just acknowledging my wrong and then trying harder. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. True repentance is always oriented towards God, not myself. True repentance is always dealing with the heart. True repentance realizes that whatever I did wrong on the surface is a reflection of something that's in my heart. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, all the issues in our life come from our heart. All the wrong things come out of something that's wrong in our heart. And so true repentance is always oriented toward God, not myself, because behind my wrongdoings is either a self-centered heart or anger or envy, or bitterness, or insecurity, or no concern for God's will, and so forth. And repentance is motivated by realizing, I've offended the God who loves me. I've offended the God who took his only begotten son and put him on the cross in my place and judged him in my place. And it creates this dissonance inside of us. And the only way out of it is repentance. A change in perspective, a change in our hearts. A change that goes from egocentric to gospel-centric. A, a change that happens at the core of our being. Uh, David, after his sin, you know, says in Psalm 51, 
Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. You know why? You can't do that for yourself. You can't create a clean heart, a pure heart. Only God can do that for you. And he does it at the cross. He does it in Christ. And he invites us to repent and to embrace the truth. I would suggest to you this morning that religion misses the whole point. It's focused on what I can do. The physical is elevated over the spiritual. Appearance matters more than hearts. And when you think about it, religion is actually self-promotion, which is why God hates it so much. Because God has given us himself. And when we rely on ourselves instead of him, uh, we miss what God has for us, the gift of salvation out from underneath the very wrath of God, which the Bible is very clear we all deserve. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we're raised in a culture that makes us think that religion makes us okay with you. How many times have we all had conversations with people and we've tried to share the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, the, the, the message of your son Jesus, and people have just said, well, you know, I was born this way and that's how I'm going to die. And they mention some religion that they were born into. And I think how tragic, Father, to miss out on the gift of your son and eternal salvation, the difference between heaven and hell for all of eternity over religion. And most people really do think that their religion satisfies you. But when we turn to your word, and we see here in Romans and in other places, the emptiness, Father, of our attempts to reach you, and the beauty of your coming to us in Christ, to bridge the gap between us. There's such a world of difference between religion and Christianity. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would help us to appreciate more and more the gift that you gave to us in Jesus, and especially as we approach Easter. And that we would recognize, Father, that you have entrusted to us a message, good news, really good news. And that you've entrusted it to us so that we could live by it and so that we could share it with the world around us. So that the world would come to know what kind of a God you really, really are. You're a God who hates sin. You hate it. You're a God who is three times holy. And yet you're a God who loves sinners like us. And so, Father, you created this plan of salvation to get us out from underneath your wrath, to give us this gift. And I pray that as we embrace it, that the cross would ma be magnified in our hearts and minds and that the person of Jesus would be the object of our worship. And that we would appreciate you, Father, with increasing devotion. For Jesus' sake we pray.